0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 and this is episode 1277. Of the survival podcast, and since it's Friday, 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 you know what that means. Listener Calls has returned. It's been ten days, I think, or ten episodes. Not ten days, ten episodes. Since we've had a listener call show. I had some kind of wind down issues toward the end of December and uh, needed needed some breaks and some time off. And even before I officially took off, I needed some time off. I was uh I was pretty burned out in December. If you can't tell the batteries are Fully and wholly recharged going into 2014 after my long break. And uh, it's a little lesson there. Sometimes we all need a break, and sometimes we're not ourselves if we don't take it when we need it. Anyway, before I get to uh, your calls today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today. Westernbotanicals.com. Um, one of my favorite sponsors. I guess I love all my sponsors equally, but you still have certain things about certain sponsors that are your favorite, kind of like your kids. You love all your kids equally, but there's certain things that make them your favorite in certain areas. I think my favorite thing about Western Botanicals is the, the uniqueness in our sponsor lineup. There's nobody that does anything like them. Um, providing herbals. For your, you know, any needs that you would have for herbal medications, real people that'll really help you if you call them on the phone. No false promises, none of this stuff. You know, this cures cancer or whatever. Just real, honest to God, herbal supplements to help you with your health needs, uh, and help you make smart decisions for yourselves uh, about, you know, when to rely on those and when to rely on traditional medicine. And the selection is enormous. I've never seen anyone with the selection of herbals that Western Botanicals has, and the natural quality. Everything's either organically grown or wild-crafted. I mean, there, there's really nobody out there like Western Botanicals in the herbal business, and I am so grateful to have them as a sponsor. And then they support the show by giving away their premium discount membership, which would cost most people 50 bucks for free. Um, it's just an awesome deal all around. Now, they do that for the member support g- brigade members. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. If it's herbal and it's legal, they've got it. And if you're not sure what you need, call them up, and they can help you figure that out. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. Harvest Eating, Chef Keith Snow, the illustrious, the awesome, the cool, expert council member, Chef Keith Snow, actually the only member of the expert council I have today. Steve Harris was going to send me a couple uh, this week, but he had a pipe blow in his basement, so he's got his hands full, so to speak, right now. So uh, I'm sure we'll hear from Steve next week and some of the other council members. But Chef Keith has herbs of a different kind, herbs for your cooking. Uh, I use his Montreal Steak Seasoning, his Northern Italian Seasoning, his Grilled Chicken Seasoning, and his Low and Slow Barbecue all the time. The other stuff he has is pretty good, but those four are go-tos. Um, I use at least three of those four every single week, sometimes multiple times in my kitchen. Best stuff I've found, really high-quality stuff. Chef Keith's made a commitment to doing business in America with Americans. I think that's awesome. It's not been easy on some things that he's had to find supplies of, but it's what he's done. And uh, He also has a great podcast and a great website and a great YouTube channel. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. Best way to visit Western Botanicals, Harvest Eating, or any of our sponsors, come to the com and use the links and the resources for today's show or the banners in the right-hand margin so you know you're dealing with someone I actually endorse. Remember, endorsement does not come easily around here. We have a very limited number of sponsors and a very specific procedure for selecting whether or not they get on the show. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the member support brigade. If you join the MSB, you can help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. You'll get discounts to over 40 vendors. You'll get over $150, almost $200 actually worth of ebooks the day you sign up. $50 a year or five bucks a month. cents an episode is what that comes out to. So when you get on with the show, if you think, hey, man, that was worth uh, two dimes, consider joining. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or you're a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, or anything like that, uh, again, active duty or prior service, just email me with service discount in the subject line before you join the MSB. One or two sentences tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And uh, I will get back to you with a discount code to uh, save you even more money on an already great product. It's, uh, it's a pretty good discount. I don't even reveal it to people unless they ask for it and provide me some evidence that they have served in some capacity in the past. Uh, next up, before we get started on your calls, I have uh, our history segments, the year 1277. And Episode 1277. By the way, yesterday I might have said it was 1278. I put that in the title, keystroke error, and I might have said it. Yesterday it was 1276, so today 1277. Aristotle banned modern science begins. Uh, bishop Tempere issues a ban on certain teachings of Aristotle at the University of Paris. While it is not clear that the bishop has scientific objectivity in mind when he issues his ban... The ban has the effect of giving scientific inquiry a good stiff kick in the backside. Aristotle has taken them about as far as he could. They are on their own now, and they are ready. Next up in the same year, the Great Wall is completed in Japan. The Great Wall of Japan? Really? You bet. Anticipating another invasion from the Mongols, the Japanese samurai have completed their fortifications at Hakat Bay. It is a substantial wall, 15 feet high, 25 miles long. While it's not clear if the wall will be the critical factor in repelling the invasion, it certainly will help. The Mongols are coming, and everyone knows that. This this stuff comes from Alex Shrugged, who always sends me this awesome stuff. Here's his take on this, and I'll give you my take on a little bit of it, too, before we move on. Uh, Aristotle banned in Paris. Modern science begins. While Aristotelian logic had advanced scientific thinking for centuries, it makes a number of erroneous assertions, such as projectiles are not propelled by the energy conveyed to it at the time of release. There could be no other worlds like Earth, and it's asserted that a vacuum was impossible. Now, those are all wrong, we know that. Aristotelian logic is a magnificent way of figuring things out, but it has its limits. So, uh, so I agree with that. I, I think my bigger takeaway from the whole concept that science was bogged down with Aristotle and a certain line of thinking and certain rules, I, I take it out to even bigger than science. I would put it into government, for instance, that we have... In our society today, if we look to learn from this lesson of the past, all of these things that people are not permitted to do that make no logical sense. They make no logical sense at all. Go try to build an earthship. ship. Um, try to build an eco-village. We're going through legal issues right now trying to do that ourselves. Um, there's so many things that we have. You can't do that. Why? Because we said so. right? Um, this bogged-down concept... You know, you can't plant a garden in a freaking front yard. Where does this come from? Everybody's supposed to have a freaking lawn edged out green a certain height with one lollipop tree in the middle. It's the same thinking. This is because it's been this way, therefore it must stay this way, and this is what's acceptable. And what it does is it stifles innovation, it stifles creativity, and, and it stifles moving forward. This, this line of thought that because we've always said that everybody must conform to this, and by and large most people have, and it's become considered aesthetically pleasing or the only way to do something safe means that that's the truth, and it's not. It's not. So that's my big lesson that I get out of that. The Great Wall of Japan, um, Alex says, if the samurai don't have spies in Korea by now, watching for the Mongol preparations, they're idiots... The reports of Mongol preparations are probably driving the building of the wall. I would actually say that the bigger lesson to me comes down the road in history: that the Mongols come back, they try to invade Japan again. This time, the Japanese don't get lucky with the winds, you know, sinking the the, the Mongol fleet. They repel the invasion, and they repel the invasion because dun dun dun, they were prepared. That they didn't ignore the threat; they prepared for the threat. And even if the wall wasn't the critical component of the preparations, if it wasn't the most important thing, the fact that the wall was built was a symbol to the entire nation. This is a problem. This is coming. Let's get ready in every other way that we can as well. And that lesson for us as modern survivalists is when you see a threat, do not ignore it. Be prepared. Basic as it gets, but history shows us that those who are prepared fare better than those who are not. Uh, next, before I take a call, I got a little This is – we're into the main show now as far as I'm concerned. We're into the whole way of thinking about life and, and dealing with modern situations and modern survivalism. I want to – you know, for people that might be new to the show, to explain to you, this show is very diverse. We'll talk about building a business one day. We'll talk about starting a fire with friction the next day. Uh, we might do that in the same show. We'll talk about how to cook, how to find a job, how to invest our money, how to protect our money how to grow our own food, how to store food, you name it, we'll talk about it. And basically coping with modern life and understanding how to deal with situations in modern life and how to deal with other people fairly, including dealing with other companies. So a lesson from that came to me last night. I had a guy that emailed me. who was kind of out of sorts because he purchased ammunition from a company. And this company sold him a thousand rounds of ammunition. I think it was AK ammo, seven six two by thirty nine, whatever. It doesn't matter. Thousand rounds of ammo for two hundred and fifty bucks. I think it was. And he bought it, and he paid for it, and they sent him what he bought, and it came, and he went back to the website for whatever reason, and they had dropped the price on the same ammunition by about thirty bucks. So he fires off an email to the people and says, I want you to credit my account for that $30 because I purchased this just three days ago, and now you've dropped the price. And, you, and they said, uh, n- no, we're, we're, we're not going to do that. And he wrote me an email upset and felt that he was being treated unfairly and that he shouldn't give this company business uh, anymore. And he asked me if he was wrong to feel that way. And I said, yeah, I think you're getting it wrong. I think you're absolutely getting it wrong. And I think that you need to understand when you do business, especially with smaller companies and things like that, every transaction matters. And they can't do what Best Buy does or Walmart does in price matches and all this. They have to price things based on what makes them enough profit to pay their bills, stay in business, take care of their employees, and serve their other customers. And furthermore, with something like ammunition, you should understand that a company is probably stocking and selling ammunition very, very quickly, turning it over very, very fast. And ammunition comes in today, and they pay a, they pay get a certain rate on it. They set the price on it, and they start selling that inventory. You buy that inventory. Three days later, the inventory they have on the shelves is like they've been completely flipped over. They get a new shipment in. Maybe their price went down on that new shipment. Now, they put the same margin on what you bought three days ago that they put on this new ammo that just came in. That's how they run, especially ammunition sales. And, um, you can't just go backwards and say, well, I want you to price yesterday's ammo and today's pricing. And furthermore, what if it was silver? What if you went out and bought 10 ounces of silver and then silver went down three bucks an ounce. Are you going to go back to the silver dealer? And say I want thirty bucks credited to my account, and he said, "Well, if they, you know, if they think it's worth thirty bucks to lose a the customer, then fine." And it's like that's not the point. And then I sent him another email. One he and I he, I, he actually keeps hitting me back with emails, and I'm being, I'm being very nice about this. I'm not being a jerk or anything. I want you understand that. Um, but I, I've asked him the same question three times, and he refuses to answer it. And when you refuse to answer a question, there's usually a reason. And the question I put to him was. Let's say that you bought this for $250, and three days later their pricing that they had to pay changed, and the price went up to $280. If they emailed you or phoned you up and said, dude, um, the price went up on this, and it was only three days ago that we had this transaction, Um, so we're going to need $30 from you. Or at least the next time you order, we're going to add $30 to your order uh, to basically debit your account because you know our price went up. And it was only three days. He doesn't want to answer that question. Because it really is the same thing. You made the deal 72 hours ago. The situation changed 72 hours later. You know what's got us thinking this way? That that's unfair? Best Buy, Walmart, price matching, all this crap. Well, let me tell you something. Small companies can't operate that way. Either you genuinely care about doing business with small businesses Or you just want what you want that is the most advantageous to you at the moment versus a long-term relationship that's the most advantageous to you over time. And I just think that the gentleman misses the point there, but gets it because when you say, well, what if it was the other way around? The email I got back was, oh, I love the show, Jack. In other words, I don't want to answer that because it makes me look hard at the situation. And one thing you should know about ammo, ammo works a lot like silver and gold. It's in and out. It's a flipping over inventory for a dealer. It's a low margin business. And their price that they're paying for their inventory is changing every 24 hours. And if you want Walmart, go to Walmart. If you want to deal fairly with other men, then there has to be some trust in commerce. And I think that most people have done that. And by the way, At almost every single retailer online I've ever seen selling ammo, they all have the following policy. All ammunition sales are final. Even if they have liberal exchange policies with everything else, they have that about ammunition. Why? Because of what I've just told you. It's a lot like dealing in any commodity with a fluctuating price. And I just think it's something that we need to think about because I I did a show earlier this week where I talked about People feeling that they have something coming to them, not just entitlement, but I've got this coming to me or I've got that coming. We've been led to believe with modern consumerism that you have the best deal coming to you no matter what it does to the supplier. If you want a supplier to be for you, be there for you in the future, right, then there has to be a meeting in a free market of value for value based on the current cost of operations for both parties. And it's the same as buying local food. You're going to pay more for a tomato from a farmer locally than you will from Walmart, but you're getting better service and you're supporting someone who you say you care about. That same farmer will sell you tomatoes for less money himself when he's at the peak of his harvest versus when he's on the early part of his harvest and he's in shorter supply with higher demand. That's how markets work. And I think it's sad that we've lost that and we have a belief that unless somebody gives us the best price we can get anywhere that we're being ripped off, we're not. Little words of wisdom for the day. Let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey Jack, this is Pud from the Forum. I was just wondering,
1: what were some of your best resources for getting started in gardening? I started a thread on the forum under the Gardening and Agriculture tab, and it's titled, How Did You Get Started in Gardening? What Was Your Best Resource? So I was kind of wondering, what were your best resources when you got started, and what are some of the resources that you wish you had have had available now that you have the Internet? Anyway, thanks for your time.
0: Well, that's, that's a really an interesting question. I have to say that my greatest resource in learning the garden was my grandfather on my father's side, who maintained a very large garden and provided a lot of food for his household for many, many years. And in my youth, uh, first when I would go on summer vacations to Pennsylvania from Florida, and when we eventually moved and he was even older, uh, I probably did 90% of the work at that point in the garden under his tutelage, and, and that was my greatest resource. And I think it's one of the greatest resources you could have for a variety of reasons. The person that would be doing that for you at that point has massive experience on the property that you're working on or the area you're working on, and and really knows it, and the multi-generational thing is so missing in today's world. There's not enough multi-generational uh, teaching in anything, let alone gardening. But that said, there's things that I know today that my grandfather would have probably balked at that work better. Um, we didn't use really mulch. Um, we got away with it because the soils were so fertile. Uh, the piece of land he was using was kind of downgraded from the rest of the property, and it had almost no erosion. It was farmed, uh, or not farmed, gardened very intensively, and it never seemed to not produce. We rotated things. We did basic row cropping, uh, rows, double dug, simple stuff. Um, but there was a lot of things that we didn't do that would have worked better. Um, we did tomatoes staked, um, but individually staked where a like a, a TP Trellis system would have probably worked a lot better uh, and been a lot more of a sustainable thing where I would have been cutting steaks every year um, like, I, like he had me doing. Um, I know that we grew lots of cucumbers for pickles. It was a huge crop for us, both for cucumbers, for fresh eating and for pickles. Uh, cause my grandmother, you know, pickled everything basically. And, uh, we grew the cu- cucumbers on the ground instead of trellising them, which would have been a much more productive way to grow. So those are things that I've learned more and more from modern gardening techniques and from trial and error and from the permaculture school of thought. Um, it's hard for me now because you're asking me to backpedal a little bit. If you just want to garden, I think that either getting a book on biointensive gardening, if you want to do really large gardens, uh, doing lasagna mulching or square foot gardening are probably the best things you can do when you want to run a few raised beds and get maximum productivity over a small space and be as error-free as you possibly can. That said, um, I believe that permaculture is is superior to gardening, that there's gardens in permaculture, but permaculture is not gardening. And I think that if you want long-term sustainability, minimal work, maximum production, maximum biodiversity, the healthiest soils and food you can get, that it, it makes sense to go straight to the permaculture world, but it takes a higher level of thinking. It takes a significant amount of study. It takes greater effort to get started even though it takes less effort to maintain and develop and, and, and work with over time. So I think it actually does make a lot of sense to start with basic gardening and move on from there. But thinking about a more holistic integrated system would probably be a good idea. Getting a book uh, that opens your eyes to permaculture without getting too deep, uh, something like Paradise Lot, by Eric Tosmeyer and Jonathan whatever his name is um sorry I just not being disrespectful just don't remember his name um that would be a great book to kind of open your eyes to what's possible and being more narrative than being uh scientific and I think it's very very helpful to read a book like that you'll get a little bit more politics in it than you probably need but it's it, it it's it's more than tolerable for the message and value that you get out of the book and it's not in your face. It's just like that's what's important to him. So I, it's fine with anybody putting that in their own book, for God's sakes. Um, if you just wanted to grow stuff fast, square foot gardening, the square foot gardening book is is probably the in, you know Mel Bartholomew, Mel's mix and mixing up your own fill and uh, follow his instructions and you'll have success. The one thing I'll caution you with, I have found that a lot of his planting densities where he says okay in this grid plant nine seeds of this plant are a little overly optimistic. It's too intensive and you don't get, uh, the, you'll get more by planting less, by planting four instead of nine, for instance, in certain, certain plant types. And you learn that over time. The beauty of square foot gardening is that you manage the soil literally one square foot at a time. So when you're worried about this one plant and it's come to its end of life, and you're removing it and planting something new, you're just fertilizing with compost and mulching that one spot. And there's a lot of value to that intensive management technique. Again, biointensive's is pretty good. But my biggest initial um, resource was my grandfather's teaching. And even after that, when I came back to gardening, Um, which would have been right after 9 11 was when I started, when I started gardening again. That's when I planted my first garden in years. Uh, when we lived in Arlington before we moved to Pennsylvania, um, for that job, I had planted, you know, some grapevines and some stuff like that in the backyard, but I really didn't have a garden garden. We had a small yard, two big dogs, everything we tried to do got dug up. Uh, I didn't really have any knowledge of permaculture at all at the time, and it just didn't seem right. And when we moved to Pennsylvania, we had an acre. Uh The dogs were fenced in one area. there's another area available and I thought about it, but it was it was being away from my family on that day. They just said, "Go back to your roots so that spring i I planted a garden that that very month when I got home, I built a fire pit with my son, and we began doing community campfires and stuff like that and and just a whole walk back towards where we're at now but uh that spring was the first garden. And all I did was just dig up the plot and plant it. That's what I did. I did what I knew to do. I knew that certain plants grew well there and I planted it and it just started and it's, it's, I think it's more important that you do something than whose method you use to do it. You will have failures, the failures will lead you to corrections, the corrections will lead you to success. Those are my thoughts. Uh, great question though. I have a link to that thread in the forum. If you'd like to chime in on that one, you can do it in the show notes, but that would be a good one to do on the forum since there's already an active thread there with tons of responses. Great job starting that post, by the way, on the forum. Uh, let's take another one.
2: Hey Jack, how are you? It's John from New Hampshire. I, uh, kind of have a strange question for you, a libertarian question. I'm a recent libertarian a couple of years now, and a lot of times I've, I've been reading some, uh, some on Facebook and whatnot. And uh, they seem to be kind of anti-veteran, anti-military sometimes, which kind of throws me off. So my dad's a veteran. I have a huge respect for veterans. Um, as you know, I work in a restaurant, and on Veterans Day, it's like Christmas for me to meet all the veterans, the World War II vets, and whatnot. I'm just looking to see what your opinion is on that, what your position is on that. It's not really turning me away from libertarianism, but, you know, it kind of turns me off from it sometimes, I guess. But you know, it isn't really going to change me. I'm <laughs> just curious what you think. It's uh you know it's always good to talk to you I guess and uh, you know on voicemail <laughs> and I hope to see you soon thanks
0: buddy bye bye. Well John glad to hear from you we missed you at the last event you are a centerpiece of the ones you show up at so I hope to see you again uh, at the one the next one we do whenever we figure out when we're going to do it and what we're going to be doing. Um John is the guy that made the uh, the infamous quote that if t s p did a uh, event on paint and drying and I could get there, I would come to it just for the people that are there he 's a really cool dude and it 's a great question and it's it's one that's it has some difficulties being answered. This is the facts about being a libertarian as you learn more and more about all of the principles in libertarian uh thinking. And all of the concepts uh, that it leads to, such as voluntarism and non-aggression principles, it, it's it's almost impossible that you would do that and not become anti-war. And if you're not anti-war, I have to ask you a question. What the hell is wrong with you? Because if you're not anti-something, you're pro-something. That's that's the only two ways to be. You're pro-war. Who the hell in their right mind is pro pro-war. Who the hell is pro the, the killing of any other human beings who are not directly threatening you? Which all war results in, period, no matter how hard modern warfare attempts to you know mitigate civilian casualties and things like that. There are soldiers on both sides in war that really don't want to be hurting each other. They don't want anything to do with the politics of their nation. So libertarianism is absolutely anti-war. And I'm anti-war, and I don't apologize for that. And I think it's sickening and disgusting that anti-war has been equated with being a commie or a pinko or something like that, or a, or a, you know, a, a liberal in the the most malicious way someone can use that word. Uh, where I'm very liberal on things and very conservative on things, depending on what they are and how they impact me. Um, so. I think that we have a society that has some really nefarious agendas at the top that are often moved forward through the use of war. And what has happened is we have had the heroism of the soldier marketed to us and then been sold on the concept that if you're not for a war, you're against the soldier. And this is bullshit. I am absolutely anti-war. I am not anti-soldier. The soldier has sworn to uphold and defend the constitution of this nation. Unfortunately, many of the people in charge will send the soldier to do things that do not qualify for that. And the soldier has been trained in such a way that in many instances he won't recognize that, as is the case with like 99% of Americans won't recognize that. And there is some animosity in the libertarian world, especially among people that are of the Vietnam era. And and, and here's a big part of why. There's a a song I did a whole show on called Allentown by Billy Joel. And in that show, there's one line, and it says, They threw an American flag in our face. And what what it's talking about is how the men that went off to fight Vietnam had valor and standing up for America and defending their nation Sold to them based on the World War II vets that you're talking about, John. And when they came home, nobody gave a shit. And they knew the war they fought was in no way comparable to the needs to fight World War II at the time. That they were lied to. And as many of those people have found libertarianism and as many people that are a little bit younger but lost uncles or, or fathers or brothers in Vietnam, you know, that are just, you know, right in my age, really have a hard time with this whole military-industrial complex and tend to lash out at the soldier. But let me put it to you this way. There are a lot of people in the libertarian movement that are basically sanctimonious assholes. I mean, that's the only way for it. I would say there's libertarians, there's anarchists, there's minarchists, there's voluntarists. There's all in that group. There's genuine people that really care that make up the majority. Unfortunately, some of the more vocal are sanctimonious assholes. that forget... That they probably didn't always think this way. They forget that they were probably a person that voted for Gore or Bush at one time too. Right? And that they were a person that thought, well, we gotta blow those people up at one time too. That how they got to their way of thinking and an understanding and a deprogramming was a deep long journey that required a lot of self-reflection. But once they get there, they're like, well, everybody else is stupid but me. And there's some people that are pretty vocal in our space, in our libertarian space, that are very much that way. And I think they're all full of shit. And I will tell them to their face, if they give me that crap face-to-face, that you're full of shit. And I, I I won't try to make it nice or pretend that we're having an equitable discussion. I'll tell you what I really think, because you're now equating the soldier with the politician. And it's wrong. And I'll tell you that the only reason that more evil hasn't been done in the world through the use of the military by all nations is the man in the uniform who has a point they won't cross. There are bad soldiers, but there's bad priests. There's bad kindergarten teachers, for God's sakes. All right, There's been priests that have molested little children. We know this. So we we can't say all priests are child molesters, that's asinine. So to to take the actions of some soldiers who violate their oath and, and then put that on all soldiers is being a sanctimonious asshole. The problem that these sanctimonious asshole libertarians have is they've forgotten the actual problem isn't the soldier, it's the state. It's not the individual, it's the system. It's the system. And what it is is they look at legitimate things and it angers them and then they redirect that anger at someone that's no more a part of the system than somebody else who they don't have anger at because it's not as obvious. What I mean is they look at things like World War II, a company called IG Farvin, headed up by a guy named Prescott Bush. This is George Bush Sr.'s dad. George Bush Jr. is flying airplanes, fighting World War II george george bush uh, 's father, Prescott, uh, through i. g. Farvin, is selling a fuel additive to the Nazis, which is the only thing that allows their jets to fly and their some of their planes to fly. Most of the advanced planes of the Luftwaffe could never have gotten off the ground without a fuel additive sold to them by a United States company being run by a man who had a son fighting in the war. Now he was in the Pacific Theater not, but that doesn't really that 's pretty much a splitting of a hair. And that is a disgusting reality of profiteering on warfare. And that kind of thing runs rampant. And the use of force against non-aggressive individuals is completely anti-libertarian. So they look at a soldier and they say, you did it. But 95% of people that are in the system are part of the same system in different ways. The person that oversees tax collection to fund the military is as responsible or more responsible than the soldier. But I'm anti-tax. I'm not anti-tax collector. This guy has a job. He doesn't know any better. He's been duped the way most Americans have. So I think what you do have to understand is a lot of times when you hear this anti-soldier rhetoric wrapped into anti-war, most of these people are bitter, sanctimonious jerks. that don't really remember what it was like when they didn't know what they know now. It's easy to get that way. It's easy to become jaded. It's easy to think, well, everybody's stupid but me. But the only person I know that says that often is a guy in a cartoon called Homer Simpson, and we laugh at him because of his incompetence. That's how I feel about some of these people. The other people that really torque me off are the ones that have served and then have some type of bitterness for their service. And there's a lot of things I can say about how you're used as a soldier, but I'm not bitter over my service. My service gave a lot to me and taught me about doing things that were more important than just myself. Was I manipulated by the system? Absolutely. But there are people also in this movement who have served, who now crap on the soldier, yet still point out they served like they want respect for it. Such people are vehement scum because they're trying to twist things. Well, it's okay for me, but it's not okay for them. And... All of this really should be shelved in many ways in libertarian thought and debate. The point of the non-aggression principle isn't to point out people being used for aggression and calling them wrong. It's to advocate to restrict and stop and obliterate the use of aggressive force on anybody for any reason other than for self-defense. And you get further... By making a case for not using force than by vilifying people who are often only using force because they've been put into a situation where they are in a self-defense situation. Because I don't care why you're there. Once somebody's shooting at you, if you have any will to live, you look for cover and you return fire, especially if that's what you're trained to do. And understand that these young men and women that go serve our nation – don't go there thinking, I will help the global elite extend their empire. They go there because they believe in what they're doing. And if you're one of these sanctimonious assholes, I would say, most likely, just like you once did. Anyway, that's the best I can do with a very complex question, John. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, John, West Virginia.
1: This little heads up here. We had a record low temperatures last night, and no guy lived around here. He wasn't really homeless, but just kind of a local drunk. Uh Probably 70s. Had a lived in a camper. Had no heat. He got down to about six below last night. You now he had shelter, but didn't have no supplement of heat. And They found him dead this morning. It's kind of weighing heavy on my mind. Fair just to let you know about it. Thanks a lot, man.
0: Well, it's always good to hear from you, John. Um, I'm sorry that it's on these terms that someone, you know, passed away like this. Um, And there's a lot of things at play in in what John said there. A camper only does provide so much shelter. Uh, It's not the best place to be when it's six below. On the best of circumstances, if you're a 70 year old drunk and you probably tied one on. Um, and maybe you lay down without any additional coverings or whatever in a weakened state. It's, it's, it's quite p- probable that, you know, the end result would be the end result. But the bigger lesson is a couple things. One. You know, maybe there's nothing could have been done for that man. There's, there's people living like that that you, you know, if you try to help them, they're not helpable. They want to be the way they want to be. And, and frankly, you know, if a man's 70 years old and wants to live in a way that's, 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 you know, possibly risking his life at the end of his life, it's his business. And, um, we need to do what we can to help people that want to be helped, but we also have to respect individual wishes. So I, I don't know, but, you know, maybe, more could have been done by a community to help this guy. You know, why was he an old drunk in the first place? Did he not have anybody or was he just like that? I mean, you don't know, but the thought is, you know, maybe, and that's probably why it weighs on people because even someone you don't really know, but you know of, you form an attachment to. And and that's about teaching you that a lot of this attitude that some survivalists have, that it's just, it's, it's me against the world uh won't re- work really well when there's suffering people around you. That that one you know, one way or another you're gonna be called on to help and either you're gonna help or you're gonna live with remorse. That's not that's not any way applicable to John's situation here, but it's a lesson that if someone you just know of has that happened to them in a way that there's probably nothing anybody could have done without knowing directly what was going on. Um that when you can do something and you choose not to, it, it'll weigh on you hell of a lot more. And we need to think about a greater responsibility uh, to our communities and, and, and to others around us uh, rather than just taking care of ourselves. Now, it's true we should take care of ourselves and our families first um, because that is a position of strength, and it gives us greater leverage to help others because we're not worried about ourselves. Because we know we've got what we need, and I'm not saying that we give away what we have in a crisis to the point where we ourselves then do without in, in a serious way. But if we have enough to look after ourselves, uh, and 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 we do have more, or we can just help with organizing people and getting people together and doing things, that we have a call to do that. That emotional connection that John feels to this guy that he really didn't know uh, is, is an explanation of why that is intrinsically human. Um, and lastly, uh, just a direct lesson, is that supplemental heat's important. I mean, a small propane heater would have probably kept this man alive had he not you know, possibly asphyxiated himself or something. But there are people that they are in poor health or they just are at a point in life where maybe you know, if a guy's an old drunk, he might have done so much damage to his body that somebody else sleeping in there would not have passed away. I, I, I don't really know. There's no way to really know that. I guess unless you had access to a coroner's autopsy, which they probably wouldn't do in this situation, um, all you can do is speculate. But you know that you do have to think about the fact that it gets cold. In 90% of the United States, cold weather is a factor that can become severe enough to cause injury and or death, and certainly discomfort, and it's something we should all take seriously enough to have more than one plan for how to stay warm. Uh, from layered clothing to cold weather gear to supplemental heating to primary heating, uh, to any other thing that we can come up that we can do to be more stable. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lesson that you're better off learning by hearing about something tragic happening to someone else rather than experiencing something, you know, only 10% is tragic to yourself. So I guess it's kind of a wake up call. I don't really have much else to say on this one other than John, I'm sorry uh for this gentleman and I'm sorry that you know it weighs on you. But the best thing I think that we can all do is learn as many lessons from things like this as we can. Let's take another call.
1: Hi Jack, this is Darren from the forums. I have a question for Keith Snow about cooking oils. Keith, when a recipe calls for oil, but it doesn't specify the type
3: of oil that I should use. Which oil should I use and why? And we have a lot of choices between different types, such as veggie and canola
4: and peanut and sunflower and probably half a dozen others that I'm not aware of. I wonder if I should be more selective, you know, when choosing an oil for cooking. Um, I look forward to your answer, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow from the expert panel Wanted to answer Darren's question about what type of oil to use. Darren, that is a great question. And, uh, you do see lots of recipes. Usually they're baking recipes that are looking for some type of oil. Um, but not, not exclusively baking recipes. But this is the rule of thumb that I use. Um, if you're talking about an oil that would be considered a quote unquote vegetable oil, um, most people are going to be using um, either vegetable oil, canola oil, maybe peanut oil. Um, most of those oils are, are going to contain GMO ingredients. Usually, they're going to be a large uh, proportion of it is either going to be soybeans, which are you know genetically modified, um, not a very good oil, or they're going to be canola, and that's pretty much all genetically modified, um, not a good choice. At all. Those are really not healthy oils. Soy and canola, uh, corn oil, mazola, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, just look at the price and that, uh, this can be a good judge for just about any commodity type product like this. If you, if you look and you see zillions of bottles of oil and it's super cheap and there's all this variety, you're probably dealing with a very cheap, um, just a junk product. So I will not cook with um, any of those oils. Now, for a plain tasting oil that would be a little more um, on the healthy side, I would prefer grapeseed oil. Um, I used to use pure olive o- olive oil or light olive oil, but that was until I found out that, um, and, and these were sort of the major brands, I won't mention their names, but um, a lot of these olive oils are very, very uh, tricky in that the the, uh, there's just tons of corruption, particularly over in Italy. And there's been studies, recent studies, um, at the University of California at Davis, where about 60% of the oils tested in a supermarket, and these are major supermarkets, and this was just like two years ago, um, that are supposed to be olive oil have been adulterated, which means they've been cut, uh, or stuff's been added that's not olive oil and it's usually nut oils or even soybean oil, canola oil. So you think you're, you know, getting this healthy, you know, heart healthy olive oil and it's pure and light and all that wonderful stuff. And then, you know, you're gambling with your money. About 60% of them have been proven to be adulterated. How many of those have been fixed? I don't know. But there is rampant, rampant corruption in Europe in the olive oil market, not only in Italy, but in Greece and in Spain. And what happens is these major brands, they don't really own any olive trees. They just buy on the global market. And, uh, so they'll buy, you know, tanker loads of oil from this country and, you know, Greece and Tunisia and Spain and Italy. And then they'll, uh, mix it all together and bottle it up in the fancy labels. And, uh, you guys in the store or, or guys and gals, including myself, are left to, to wonder, should it be trusted? So, um, that's kind of what led me to, um, find a a farm in california and and we have a olive oil called thoughtful harvest now this is an extra virgin olive oil so in the case that you're talking about it's it's not a good fit for that but that's why i went out and and made a relationship and uh, we do sell a single estate um united states produced you know certified extra virgin olive oil because i can't trust these other brands and you know that would really tick me off to think i was getting an olive oil and realize that i'm getting something else. And of course, it's usually a cheaper, commoditized, uh, junk oil. So what I would do is stick with grapeseed oil. You can find that in most stores. Um, and that is made from the seeds of grapes. You know, with all the, uh, wine harvest, there's a lot of grape seeds that are left over and those are, are then cold pressed and you get grapeseed oil. It's very neutral in taste. It's got a extremely high smoke point and, uh, I use it quite a bit like for stir fry and things like that. I used to use a lot of pure olive oil, but like I said, you don't really know what's going on. And a lot of of these olive oils are also processed using a chemical called hexane, and that's a nasty nasty carcinogenic chemical. And particularly when you get to the lighter grades of oil in order to, you know, they they smash the olives, that's called first cold pressed. That's the oil that I sell. Um but then they take the the pulp and then they press it again, and then they start adding heat to it, and then finally they add hexane, which is uh, a way of getting every last drop of oil out. So I would kind of avoid the uh, pure olive oil and just go with grapeseed oil. And you can use that in baking, stir frying, just about anything else. But if you're going to be cooking, um, you know, maybe something Italian inspired or whatever, I would, um, I'd consider an extra virgin olive oil the best one that you could find. And I wanted to, um, encourage you to to definitely check out the thoughtful harvest if you're uh, interested in an extra virgin but great question darren i hope that helped out and uh, keep those questions coming folks take care
0: well that's a a great and in-depth answer by chef keith as always we got one more for keith and we'll move on to something completely different uh, after this a little segment from mainstream media that you'll think doesn't really apply to us and it was over the past christmas season but does but before that. I've got a question from the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan, for Chef Keith, and then Chef Keith's answer.
5: This is a question for the expert council member, Chef Keith Snow. This is from Michael Jordan, Wyoming Bee Survival. I wanted to know about making hummus. I want to know a good recipe for hummus and long-term storage for hummus, that we're now growing chickpeas and garbanzo beans. And we love hummus. I'm looking to see a long-term storage for it with a good recipe. I didn't know if we should just try to dry it out and make it into a powder, or is there a way of canning it, or are we just freeze-drying it. I'm looking for a long-term storage and a good recipe on hummus. I hope uh, Chef's got something good for me. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. bee Whisperer out.
4: Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with the expert panel. Wanted to answer the question from Michael Jordan about hummus. Now, uh, Michael, hummus is a great food. I love hummus. Uh, a couple of videos over at HarvestEating.com uh, or my YouTube page showing a couple of different ways to make it. Um, it's a good food. And for those of you in the TSP audience that don't know what it is, let me just give a quick primer on that. Uh, hummus is a Mediterranean Type dish, and it's very popular in places like Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, um, Israel, places like that. uh, They eat a lot of hummus, and hummus is made primarily from chickpeas or garbanzo beans. The other uh, ingredient in it that's pretty, uh, what should I say, interesting would be a roasted sesame seed paste. It's called tahini. T A H I N I tahini. You can find tahini in cans, and they're like brown and white colored most of the time, near where they sell peanut butter and honey in most supermarkets and you know, gourmet stores. But um, it's pretty commercially available tahini, sesame tahini. Now, that stuff will last a good long time in the cans. Uh, I've had cans of tahini unopened for probably three years without any problem at all. So I would suspect that those could be stored for a good long time. Uh, Could you make your own tahini? Uh, I would imagine you could. Sesame seeds would need to be toasted and then ground up um, to release all that oil. Uh, Don't know how to do it. Never tried it, but I'm sure it's possible. Now, um, other things that go in hummus, so you've got chickpeas, tahini, you know, salt and pepper, lots of good quality extra virgin olive oil. And all the countries I've mentioned there typically uh, are growers of olives or they're very close by major olive, you know, production. So good quality extra virgin olive oil, a real green stuff. You would never want to use any uh, light olive oil or, God forbid, any uh, vegetable oil or anything like that. So this is strictly your best quality extra virgin olive oil here. Um, then lemon juice is a key ingredient in hummus. And I find the more simple hummuses tend to be better. I mean, just a plain hummus with olive oil, lemon, and tahini is wonderful. Uh, I do like roasted red pepper hummus as well. Uh but then you can find hummuses that have a lot of spices in them. My wife and I, when we first started dating, I remember we would buy uh hummus in the store in these little tubs, and then we would buy uh Snyder's um sourdough pretzels from Hanover, Pennsylvania, and we would that would be a snack is take that those big hard cooked pretzels and dip it in the hummus yummy. Um but since then, hummus has gone down the toilet. You find it in the store. And to me, you know, and I get, you know, again, New Jersey. I come from New Jersey. I tend to get a little a little hot under the collar, particularly about food. But I see these companies now that are selling hummus, and the main ingredient is soybean oil. Now, I mean, any proper hummus in the world, anybody who makes hummus, any country, anybody with just a shred of self worth and dignity is not going to use soybean oil. I mean, that's just a total affront to all things hummus. So when I see these companies using soybean oil, that that's, I mean, I, I can't even think of an analogy for that, but that's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine why they would use the cheapest garbage oil, soybean oil, when uh, a, a key fact of hummus is good extra virgin olive oil, not soybean oil. So you really can't even buy it in the store anymore because as soon as you look at it, and it's got corn syrup, MSG, and, and soybean oil. I mean, who needs any of that garbage? So just make it yourself. You're on the right track. Um, a lot of a lot of hummus comes with spices in it like cumin and paprika and just different you know, Indian type fl- flavored, you know, spices like that. And that's all wonderful and good. And, and hummus is very, very easy to make. Now, your question about long-term storage, I don't know much about um freeze-drying. I, I don't know if it could be freeze-dried. I doubt a freeze-dryer is something that you have or are going to have any access to. So canning, can it be canned? Well, it doesn't have much acid in it, even though there's some lemon juice in it. So um, it would need to be pressure canned. Now, I have not done this myself, so I'm a little hesitant to recommend the process, but I know some people have done it. One of the things that's tricky about pressure canning something like hummus, it's got, you know, if if you make the dish all the way ready to serve, it's got quite a bit of oil in it. And sometimes oil can mess around with the canning process. Now, if I were to attempt to can it, I would make it, I'd grind up the, the chickpeas, I'd put the tahini, the seasonings, definitely would put the lemon juice in there, but I would leave the olive oil out. And then I would pressure can it without the olive oil. And then, you know, when you open up the can down the road, you could, you know, put your olive oil in there or even um, just pour it right on top. Perfect. But, you know, that's all possible. Like I said, I can't recommend it. Personally, I've never done it. But uh, I do store dried garbanzo beans. I like organic uh, gar- garbanzo beans dried. And then, um, then I make hummus with them or I put them in soups, whatever. And making hummus from dried beans, super easy. If you have a pressure cooker, and I recommend everyone to get a, a modern pressure cooker because they are terrific. And you can make dry, you can take dried garbanzo beans and have ones that are ready to put in soups or hummus in this case in 30 minutes flat. So it's not that, that whole bit where you gotta let them soak and cook them, you know, until the cows come home. You can use a pressure cooker. But that's what I would do. I would think more along the lines of, um, storing the tahini in cases. I would, and I do store olive oil, but when you store olive oil, it's gotta be kept at a constant temperature in the basement, something like that. Um, and you can't let any light, not even the light that comes from your lights, get to the olive oil, cause that will make it go off, um, quicker than you would think. So it needs to be in a, um, uh, a bottle. If you gotta wrap paper around it, whatever. Um, you can do that, but I would, I would avoid, um, letting any light hit your olive oil. I would store the tahini. I would store the dried garbanzo beans, and then I would make it from scratch from there rather than pressure canning it. Um, that's just my opinion. Uh, you may try it and let me know. I'd be interested to know myself because, uh, we do all love hummus here in the snow household. So I hope that helps, um, but just remember, when you make hummus, you need good quality extra virgin olive oil, pre- uh, preferably first cold pressed. If you're interested, we've got an oil called Thoughtful Harvest, comes from one farm in California, certified extra virgin, and uh, it's great in hummus. Uh, also, while I've got everybody's attention, I want to thank all of you TSPers for the support that you've shown harvest eating here, uh, in 2013. So many of you are listening to the podcast. Uh, so many of you are watching the videos and ordering stuff from the store and reordering stuff from the store, like the spices and, and the olive oil and, and that. That kind of stuff, and that's great. I wanted to mention that we have a new product out. It's called Thoughtful Harvest Premium Pasta Sauce. We've got three flavors, creamy basil pesto, roasted red pepper, and a sun-dried tomato with rosemary, all super high-quality sauces. We just launched them. They're available in the store. Um, give them a try. I think you would really love them. But most of all, I just wanted to thank you for your support. Um, it's been uh, very humbling to see how many TSPers are are kind of um, hanging out with harvest eating. I just appreciate it. And I uh, want you guys to keep calling in the questions. Have a great holiday. Merry Christmas, everyone. Take care.
0: Okay, on the overall part of that, I mean, I basically agree with Keith. I mean, the first thing I thought when I got this question from Michael is that you don't store hummus. You store all the things to make hummus. And I want to take a different perspective on it. Um, these areas of the world where hummus is so popular are largely desert climates. It's hard to store a lot of things in desert climates, uh, especially in nomadic lifestyles. A lot of hummus' roots come from nomadic lifestyles. And when you're in that lifestyle, you have to store things that can be stored without refrigeration in hot, dry climates, such as flowers and different types of flowers to make breads. You need protein. So beans, chickpeas, et cetera, are a source of protein. By the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the Italians do a wonderful hummus using fava beans. The fava beans are also great. So these beans, peas, stuff like that that can be used to make uh, hummus or other things that are also made from from mashed up or ground bean or pea flour uh, were common. Because they were great sources of protein because you can't rely too much on animal protein in these climates. Uh, because you, you can only, you know, you can only kill or hunt so much in a lot of these climates. So it's a protein and carbohydrate combination. And what are you missing then? Fat. So olive oil. The tahini also has quite a bit of oil and fat and a good flavor. So you take something like sesame. Paste, which stores almost indefinitely. You take something like a dry pea or bean that stores almost indefinitely. You take something like oil, which, as long as it's kept in a dark environment in the right type of container, stores almost indefinitely. Certainly long enough that you're only if you're in a nomadic lifestyle or a, a, somewhat of a, a a Middle Eastern tribal lifestyle, you're only going to have so much of it on hand anyway. Uh, and and then you add to it um, a bread flour of some sort. And now you can complete a basic staple of your diet all from storable goods. That's the actual origin of things like hummus. And then hummus is not the only thing like that out of the Middle East. It's just the most westernized and popularized. I totally agree on the soybean oil. Um, I was eating some hummus that we bought from the store the other day, and Joe's like, you're eating soybeans. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he flips it over and goes, look, and I was pissed. Um yeah, hummus should not be made with soybean oil. There's there's absolutely no reason to do that. Uh you've taken something with almost no need for any GMO product to go in it and almost assuredly added a GMO product if nothing else. Uh, but that's kind of the origins of it. It's a it's a it's a diet stable with fat, carbohydrate, and protein in a fairly balanced way that is from all storable goods. So the concept of making it up and storing it really is counter to the traditional reasoning behind it in the first place. It was that all the ingredients were storable. And if you take the ingredients and turn them into hummus, you have hummus. All of those ingredients have multiple functions and multiple ways they can be used. And if we start adding other legumes to long-term stores like Fava beans or like lentils, we extend that capability so that's just my thoughts on adding on it now I've got something for you I said it would be different this is totally different. this is uh, from uh, I think Conan O'Brien and I'm only gonna play like fifty percent of it because it's very very redundant by the end uh, if you want to see the whole thing I'll put a link to the video where you can watch the whole thing and it's just funny and I want you to listen to it I want you to realize what you're seeing is one of his spoofs on you know the the news. And just kind of making fun of them and listen to the audience laugh. And you might get a laugh out of it for yourself. If I play the whole thing, you'll be like, okay, I get it. You'll be fast-forwarding. So I'll only play maybe 30 seconds of it. And then form in your mind what you think it's really telling us. And then let me come back and tell you what I think it's
4: telling us. A lot of people uh, think the big news stories these days are, well, a judge ruling against snooping by the NSA or the uh, big fight in Congress over the new proposed budget. A lot of people say those are the big stories. But judging by local news, and I've been looking at a lot of local news, there's an even bigger story that's sweeping the nation right now. Who are you really shopping for this holiday season? It's okay. You can admit it if you've bought an item or two or ten for yourself. Well, it's okay. You can admit it if you have bought an item or two or maybe ten. For yourself. It's okay, you can admit it. You've bought an item (laughs) or two or ten for yourself.
0: It's okay, you can admit it if you bought an item or two or ten for yourself. It's okay, you can admit it
5: if you bought an item or two or ten for yourself. It's okay,
2: you can admit it. If you've bought an item or two or ten for yourself. It's okay,
4: you can admit it, Todd. If you bought an item or two or ten for yourself It's
5: okay, you can admit it. If you bought an item or two or ten for yourself, it's okay, you can admit it. If you bought an item or two or maybe ten for yourself, it's okay. You can admit it. If you bought
4: an item or two or ten
5: for yourself. It's okay, you can admit it if you bought one or two or maybe
0: three or four, maybe even ten items for yourself. It's okay. You can admit it if you bought an item or two or ten for yourself. (inaudible) Okay. I, I think that most people would hear that and or watch. It's funnier watching it, honestly, because you see them switching from news station to news station to news station. And this is all local news uh, people all over the country, stations and everywhere from Florida to Washington and everything in between saying the same crap. And it's easy to say you know, there's no original thought. There's no original idea. Everybody says the same stupid crap or just see humor in their, their incompetence, basically. This isn't funny. This isn't funny, really, if you think about what it really is telling you. This is a demonstration of the illusion that your local news is in any way autonomous and not run by one giant corporate monstrosity that tells it what to do every day. Yeah, they'll suck you in with a local human interest story or a story about a local politician or a crime that happens in your area that, uh, that, you know, you wouldn't cover in Tennessee if it happened in Florida they'll they'll throw those in there and pepper those in there for you. But it's really pointless. What this shows you isn't that like one person said it and everybody was like oh we all got to run a story on that now and everybody copied it. That's that's kind of the way that people look at this I think like they all copied each other. This is a time sensitive thing. This all happened really really fast. It was scripted at a corporate level. And it wasn't just NBC affiliates or ABC affiliates. This was affiliates, when you looked at all the little station icons, they're different networks. Every major network in almost all of their little affiliate stations throughout the country ran the same segment. Why? Because the media is centrally run. It's not funny. It should take away any preconceptions you have at all When Fox, ABC, and NBC are running the same segments like this nonsense at the local level. And it should give you less faith, if you have any left, in mainstream media to rely on them for anything other than occasionally they disseminate information that's actually valid, usually because they end up back into a corner where there's no point. This is why we need to seek our own answers and stop letting the TV tell us what our questions are. The biggest problem with mainstream media folks in the news isn't that the information they give isn't accurate, even though sometimes it's not, or it's not biased, even though most of the time it is. All information is going to be biased or have an agenda. Everybody's information, including my own, including yours. It's human nature. The big problem with mainstream media is not the answers they give you. It's that they're defining your questions for you. Ask your own questions and you'll find your own answers. And it'll actually be relevant and meaningful in your life. Again, this seems like a bunch of idiots, but it's not funny. I'm sure that... The you know that they had no intention to to deliver that message to you when they put the little montage together, but it's the one I got. Hopefully you see it too. Let's take another call.
1: Hey Jack, this is Jason in South Georgia, Jason 389 on the forum. I got uh, Santa Claus brought me a, a Food Saver for Christmas, which I've been wanting for a while. So of course I'm walking around the house looking for things to vacuum seal, and I had an idea. I tried it and it worked pretty good. Um, for uh, long-term storage of rice. You know, I've got some buckets, and I use the Mylar bags and then usually put the O2 absorbers in and put those inside the bucket. So I had this idea. I took a, a, a real sharp, uh, small-pointed knife, made a tiny hole up near the top of the bag, uh, sealed the bag at the very end with the rice already in it, of course, used the hose attachment on the food saver to basically draw the bag down to a vacuum, then once it's, uh, once it's vacuumed down, I took a little piece of clear tape, transparent, like Scotch type tape, sealed the hole up, and then resealed the bag down below where the hole I made was. And it actually worked really well. Uh, so I figured I'd share that with you and your listeners, and, uh, yet another use for the Food Saver bag, and, uh, one step further on removing the oxygen, oxygen from your rice and beans. Thanks for the show. Have a great day.
0: I just basically played that one as a tip. I don't have a lot to add to it, so I'm going to go ahead and just take another call.
2: Hi, Jack. This is Matt from Missouri. Um, I live in uh, in a metropolitan area around St. Louis, and uh, we, got, uh, we got a pretty good snowstorm for this area, uh, a foot, little little plus or minus in, in some places. But anyway, uh, i took you some pictures of uh, what I thought was uh, something that was kind of scary, and that was after one day and 12 inches of snow, a lot of the grocery store shelves were empty. Kind of makes you, uh, you think about even as a prepper, you know, I went to the store for a few things that I was out of. Kind of what could happen in a larger scenario. I remember when I was a kid, we got three and a half feet of snow in like, uh, 1978 or something, and it kind of shut our town down for a long time. Uh, so if that could happen in one day, and as little as 12 inches, 12 to 15 inches, some places got, you know, 15 inches of snow. So if that can happen in 12 to 15 inches, uh, what could something as simple as a snowstorm do to uh, to our food supplies and the ability to get the things that we count on? It's a little bit, uh, again, those store shelves were a little bit scary. I'm going to you some photos of it along with uh, just a few of my thoughts our experiences during this.
0: Thanks. Bye. You know, we hear stories of empty shelves during weather events and things like this all the time. And I think we kind of missed the bigger message. The bigger message, uh, than just that the foods can be wiped off of the shelves and that, you know, stores doing just in time inventory and if they don't get resupplied, how quickly they can sell out is that when you go to the store when these things are going on and you look around at what people are buying, generally you don't see people with two or three shopping carts full of food. You, you generally see people with carts just about as full as you do on any given day of the week. I want you to think about that for a second. This is the, this is, the, like I said, there's, there's, there's thinking, there's critical thinking, and there's thinking critically, right? This is not just critical thinking, but thinking critically. Let's, let's not just figure it out, but let's extract the deeper meaning from it. So if, if the average person's cart looks the same, before a major weather event, where the transportation of food into the store hasn't yet disrupted the supply. So it's business as usual from a standpoint of how much the individual is buying and business as usual as to how much comes in the funnel, and yet the shelves are wiped. What is the variable? And it is simply the number of people getting the groceries they would have probably bought anyway compressed into a single day versus over several days. That's the only variable. It's not people hoarding. I mean, it's not... You occasionally see some moron with 17 gallons of milk, right? And and, and, and 15 loaves of bread. And you, you shake your head, okay? That, but usually it's not the case. Usually if you look around, everybody is buying the same amount of stuff they generally buy. But yet everything gets wiped out because there's just more people. That means that the supply chain is so fragile that even without hoarding, that simply compressing the number of people from three or four days that generally go to a store to one or two days can seriously deplete inventory. And if you add to it the inability to resupply timely, the store can get truly wiped out. And then you have to think about anything that can disrupt the supply or increase the demand can replicate the situation. And then keeping a month or two's worth of food on hand doesn't seem like such a crazy thing to do anymore. And it's not because the zombies might march or, I don't know, Stalin will rise from the grave and and, and shoot nuclear missiles out of his ass or something. Like, do we get made out that we're that crazy that we think something stupid like that's going to happen? It's simply because the system itself is optimized for rapid turnover of inventory. And anything that disrupts a cycle like that causes a shortage. And that shortage can be short-lived, or long-term, depending on the event. That's why we don't worry about what the event is. We worry about what the dependency is. The dependency is, I need food, so I go to the store. Three days later, I need food, so I go to the store again. Four days later, I need food, so I go. That's the dependency. So we focus not on the event, but the dependency, and we break the dependency with logic and common sense. That's what food storage is really all about. Let's take another call.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Brian from California. Happy New Year to you question. I live in a um, house that has a lot of English ivy uh, that I'd like to kind of get rid of uh, and possibly, you know, re-till the soil and the areas so that I can actually turn it into something edible. A um, couple of questions. What can I do with this ivy uh, when I've gotten rid of it? Can I compost it in my regular composter? And is there any particular tricks to um, getting rid of it in the first place, other than just going at it with a weed whacker and and putting a bit of blood, sweat, and tears into it. Um, That's pretty much it. Your comments and suggestions would be greatly
2: appreciated. Thank you very much. Love the show, and thanks for all the inspirational words over the Christmas holiday. Take care.
0: Well, it's it's actually kind of complex, because the truth is, if you weed whack English ivy, Unless whatever you're planting is extremely aggressive, it's probably going to come back faster than whatever you replace it with. And you're in a situation where if you have a lot of it, you have a massive root layer that it's put down in the ground, a root layer likely equivalent in biomass to what you see above ground. So if you see a an a, a English ivy that's going up a wall or up a tree or something like that, it's huge. There's probably, it may be hard for you to get this around your head, there's probably as much root below the ground as there is stuff above the ground. And because it comes back from roots, just fine. And has no problem doing that. In fact, if you cut a piece of English ivy and stick it in moist soil with some shade, it will root on its own and start growing again. It's it's what makes it wonderful and it's what makes it difficult to eradicate if you decided I don't want it there anymore. The number one way to get rid of English ivy is let sunshine in. If you let a lot of sun in, it will kill it dead. It can't handle it. It's a shade plant. So that's that's the number one way. So what I know about your your place that you have right now is you have shade where this stuff is. You have shade for a good part of the day. So either you're going to open up some canopy, let some light in, prune back the ivy, and start polyculturing it with other things and, and go with things that are somewhat shade-tolerant, like currants and gooseberry and things like that, or anything else you can find that will, be, that will tolerate the level of shade that's supporting the ivy, or you're going to open it way up, bring lots of sunlight in, and plant things that will appreciate the sun. Um, if you're going to just try to put in shade-tolerant things, and you want to get rid of the ivy, and you don't want to open it up that much, really you're into a point where, yeah, you want to take it to the ground, and then you want to lay down probably two layers of wet cardboard, and sheet mulch on top of it, and some of it's still going to come back. Some of it's still going to come back, but you'll be able to maintain and control it, and get other things advantage to its disadvantage. You got to think hard, though, in a place where right now English ivy is growing, as to what you will replace it with. Now, since you're in California, you may be in a point where what is shady to ivy is not so shady that it won't, you know, work for some other things. There's a lot. Of of value to gardening in the shade, so to speak, in the south, as long as it's not continuous shade. It's not shade, sun, shade, sun, like a mottled uh, shade. But it's a difficult scenario you have. It sounds like you have very established ivy. And uh, yeah, you could take it down, but if it's well established, it's going to be a fight. It's not a terrible fight, though. I mean, you can just keep cutting it. Every time it comes back, cut 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 it. But you have to stay on it, and it'll take years to to fully eradicate it if that's what you want to do. The other option is to figure out places where I don't mind it and disadvantage it everywhere but those areas. Let it grow in the most shady parts where nothing productive will grow for you. Let it fill its function and niche in those areas and disadvantage it through sheet mulching and eradication through mechanical means everywhere else. Can you compost it? Yes. Um, if you just throw it into a wet pile of compost materials, it'll probably start growing. But if you cut it and lay it out in the sun and let it, let it die for a day, you can do whatever you want with it after that. It's not coming back after that. And again, the way that you eradicate English ivy is by getting it more solar uh, uh, availability than it wants. It's a shade plant. You will never see English ivy um, growing on the western wall of an unshaded building. It, it can't handle it. It just can't. Um, but if you got a big eave coming out that gives it a cast shadow for most of the day, it'll grow there and cool a house. So it, 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 in most instances, most people don't want to Do enough cutting to get rid of something like that. So you gotta, you gotta balance it. And the best way, again, would be cutting it back everywhere that you don't want it, sheet mulching the hell out of it, and planting things that can handle the space and continuously disadvantaging the ivy. Once you have mature trees and all, though, English ivy is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but I would prefer passion fruit that is edible to it, definitely. Um, I often advise people to use English ivy in places where they're not trying to grow edibles. Uh, along with things like um, jade plantings and what should I should say, jewelweed uh, and Virginia creeper uh, and English ivy to eradicate poison ivy, because what you've got is a niche that a shade-loving vine plant likes. So when you're trying to eradicate something like poison ivy, you know you can only do so much with trying to mechanically eradicate it, um, and it has huge root systems just like English ivy. So it's one of the things you can use to displace poison ivy. That tells you how tough it is. It's very, very tough. It's actually a very beautiful plant, and it's very functional. Um, but what you really sound like that you need to do is curtail it back in, and again, sheet mulching with cardboard, then a layer of compost, then a layer of organic matter, then maybe a layer of straw or a layer of wood mulch, and then planting into the compost, spiking through the cardboard, wherever you do your plantings is probably your best bet. Let's take another call.
5: Hi Jack, this is Chris calling from Ohio. Um, question about a pond. Uh is there a way to tell if your pond is leaking or leaking at a certain level? And if so, is there is there a good way to repair that uh that leak without just redoing the entire pond? Uh the background information, my wife and I just uh, got our first house out in the country here and uh, Northwest Ohio, um, and there's a pond on the property. Uh, would like to get into uh, gardening and the permaculture thing, and would really like to utilize the pond that's already there. It's a pretty nice size. Uh, it just doesn't the level just doesn't get very high. And uh, looking at satellite photos from a couple years ago, it doesn't look very high at that point either. So I'm thinking there may have been a leak in it, and it just doesn't get any higher than the current level that it's at. So I uh, was just wondering if you had any ideas on that. So thanks a lot for uh, everything you do for us, and love the show, man. Keep good work.
0: Well, your your primary indicator that a pond is leaking is going to either be it doesn't stay full, which it sounds like you have, or you can see in the impoundment weepage through the dam breast. Um, and if it's holding water but not holding water as well as you would like – then most likely it can be sealed, and there's two ways that you can do this. Um, one, put ducks on it, put ducks and geese on it. They'll shit in the water, and they will generally, within a season, seal any relatively small body of water. If you're looking at a quarter acre or less; it's probably not going to be a problem. If you're looking at like a five acre dam and it's not filling up, you've you've got an issue there. Um, on the other side of it. If you can determine where it's leaking from, and it may not be that it's leak- like a lot of times when a pond is leaking, people think, well, it fills up to here and it stays to here and then it gets recharged and it, it, it and it's, so it's gotta be leaking above that point. A lot of times it's actually leaking very b- below that point and that's just the point at which it doesn't have enough pressure to push itself out anymore. So it's not leaking like a hole in a bucket, it's leaking like a bunch of holes in a bucket with a bunch of dirt crammed up against it, which is what a dam is, and the water's seeping through. And when you fill the barrel all the way to the top, there's enough pressure from the volume of water to seep it through, seep it through, seep it through. And when it gets to a certain point, the pressure no longer is sufficient to force it through the leak. Right? Just think about if you had a barrel full of water, you drill a hole in the bottom, and the water shoots out, and as the level comes down, how far the water projects itself Goes down because there's pressure based on the height of the water and the volume of the water, volumetric pressure, and that's a lot of times with seeping. Now, if that's the case, and it sounds very much like that might be the case, it could be seeping into the groundwater, and that's why you're not seeing it come out the dam or what have you. The ducks will probably work well. Again, anything an acre or less, probably a half acre or less, almost definitely. If it's not working fast enough for you, add more ducks. When they've done their job, and you have too many ducks. Eat some ducks. I mean, that's that would be the easiest way. A quicker solution, a little less natural, but not really unnatural, it's a natural product, would be bentonite clay. And whoever you're buying your bentonite clay from, if you give them the size of the the, the dam, the depths of the dam, etc., should be able to tell you basically how much bentonite to use. And often you can basically broadcast bentonite, let it settle to the bottom of your pond, and it will seal and the fact that water seeping somewhere will draw more of it where it needs to be. I would be less in love with this idea cuz it's going to cost more and be a bigger gamble. If you do it with ducks and it doesn't work, you have ducks and you can eat your ducks. If you do it with bentonite and it doesn't work, you paid for bentonite that didn't do anything and you have nothing. So it's not as good an option if you can identify the leak is here and you saturate that area with bentonite it is almost though 100 percent with a slow leak. It will correct the issue. It may also be a situation where the pond needs to be drained and kind of redone and, and examined and, and and maybe even dredged out in areas where there's silt and, and improved. And that's that's always a tough call because you're you're putting you'll put almost as much work into doing that as to building a new pond. Right, so it's like it's almost like the pond being there didn't do much for you, but it did because what you excavate out is wonderful material from a fertility standpoint, and it really isn't as much work as building a new dam. It just feels like it, but I mean, I would say your first solution is get a bunch of Muscovy ducks or khaki Campbells or Harlequins or something or uh, apple, apple yards or whatever. Get yourself a couple dozen ducks. Give them a little place out, you know, a little duck house out there to shelter in at night. Put them on your pond. Give them some supplemental feed. And let them start crapping it up. And it's it's the most natural, low-risk solution that you have. And it's, it's really not very expensive to do. In fact, this spring, if you don't want to order poultry through the mail, which is no problem. I do it all the time with no issues. But if you don't want to, generally places like tractor supply, when they sell, you know, chicks, they also sell ducklings. So I think it's your easiest solution. Um, and you know, if I had a pond, there'd be ducks on it anyway. So let's, uh, let's take another call there.
3: Hello, Mr. Jack. This is uh, Joe, and I had a question for you about a topic that, come, that might come up in conversations. I uh, recently had the uh, good experience of seeing a friend that I served in the military with and uh, put him up for the night in my house while he was traveling. And uh, when he saw my garden and where I lived out in the country, we started talking about uh, prepping and survivalism. And I was pretty happy to hear that he was kind of going down that path himself. And uh, before too long, the conversation started going to something I was on a, really kind of unaware of, this company called Halliburton, and uh, he seemed to think that they're trying to take over the world or something, and he tried to prove to me that they had uh, concentration camps in America by showing me a picture of a guarded gate on his cell phone on someone's blog. So it, I, I wasn't convinced. So I tried to steer the conversation back to things that we have in common and maybe more of the benefits of prepping and survivalism, you know, in your circle of of influence versus your circle of concern. But I guess, long story short, I was looking for what is the Jack Spearco answer to what is Halliburton? And, you know, how, how, G. Allen conversations. Thanks for the show, Jack, and take care.
0: I think what is Halliburton and are there uh, detainment facilities being built uh, for use on American citizens are two totally different questions. Halliburton is a large government contractor, primarily who works in oil field and oil extraction uh, capacity. Uh, they do have uh, KBR is a subsidy that has built some facilities that one would look at and go may very well be what they're for. However, having researched this extensively, most of the videos of places they say, "Look, look, here it is. Here's a con-. when you actually research what that facility is, it ends up being a facility that where there would be damn good reason for security around it. Um like uh the chemical research facility or or something like that. There are some places you look at and go, "That I don't know why that level of security exists there." But I think this hysteria that they're going to lock us up and put us in FEMA camps is largely misplaced. And, and I'll tell you why. I don't think it's because the people in power love you so much they would never do it to you or they're not capable of doing something so malicious. I think it's because if you do that to everybody, there's nobody to do the work. There's nobody to be cogs in the machine. There's nobody to pay the taxes. This is this is a nonsensical, hysterical thought that they're building. Because what this is what the conspiracy theorists about these things believe. They're building them everywhere, man. They're building them everywhere. And one day, they're going to come and they're going to lock us all up. First of all, who is us? Who is the us that they're going to lock up? Libertarians? Conservatives, Christians, illegal aliens—I mean, this is what I actually believe is going on. I think that a large portion of the "look, there it is" are, is purposefully hoaxed or misunderstood. In other words, again, it's an airbase. that the person knows is an airbase, and they're going look. Or it's a facility being used for the containment of something and it's not human beings, it's like material containment that's considered something that needs high level of security and somebody sees it and they've heard this other nonsense and say, oh, concentration camp, right? Then I think there are probably some facilities out there based on everything I've looked at that legitimately exist for the containment of large numbers of people. And I think that's a big concern. But I don't think it's so they can go out and round everybody up. I think that this government knows that one day people could snap a gasket. And one day there could be massive martial law for many reasons. And the government is as big a prepper as any prepper. And I do believe they have facilities that at least for their current intention are, if everything goes nuts, we've got to have some place to put people. And we'll put them here. And we need to have a place in advance to put them. And they're not going to want to be there, so they're going to have to be secure facilities. They're going to be much like a prison. Um... The the danger is that whenever somebody in government creates something, somebody in government off down the road generally does something worse with it. Could these things become modern-day concentration camps? Yes. Are there any facilities in existence that exist solely for the containment of large numbers of people? My... Belief, And I don't have facts to prove or disprove it. My belief, based on everything I've examined, is yes, there are. They do. Are there FEMA camps being built every way so they can run out one day and knock on everybody's door and lock everybody up who is a blank? Fill in a blank with your choice? No. No. Could that day ever come? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. You don't build a bunch of concentration camps and then go put everybody in them if you the, the way this has been done in history is you build a camp you put a bunch of prisoners in there you make them build more camps as you bring in more prisoners you you can't even if you are as malicious as the Nazis you can't lock everybody up and even the if you pick segments of society you can't do it all at once you you have human beings around that only let things go so far in society That you have to win over to what you're doing through propaganda and malice. And fear. So, do I think that they've built, you know, a hundred FEMA camps to round up 50 million Christians, which is one conspiracy theorist, or to round up 30 million illegal aliens, which is what another? No. No. Do I think that our government's very disingenuous when they say there's no truth at all to this? and that they have built some facilities specifically for the containment of large numbers of individuals with a foreknowledge that in many instances those individuals would be American citizens uh, that would be placed there in violation of their constitutional rights under some sort of contention that there's an emergency that requires it. Yeah, I think our government's very disingenuous when they say there's no truth to that. I, I, I don't believe that at all. I think it's, it's, it's not just possible and probable but it makes sense that a government taking all of the other actions that we see them taking would do such a thing. And could those facilities ever be part of something incredibly evil? Absolutely. But Halliburton? If Halliburton built one of these facilities, uh, specifically through KBR, Brown and Root, or something like that, it it, it doesn't matter that it's Halliburton that built it. Halliburton's not the one trying to take over the world Um, the overall plutocracy and corporatocracy that, that Halliburton is but one component of is what wants to control and dominate society. And they prefer much over doing it with concentration camps to doing it the way they've been very effective with so far. Teaching people that they're free while they're enslaved. And having people slaves to debt, slaves to a failed economic system, slaves to a failed health care system, slaves to a food system that is not just detrimental to health, but actually fuels the purchasing within the health system, which fuels the debt. Folks, stop worrying about them enslaving you and look down at your hands and feet and see the chains that are already there, for God's sakes. The people obsessed with things like FEMA camps, Don't see the shackles that they already wear. That's what I think. Let's take another call.
5: Hi, Jack. This is Tommy from Grapevine. I just wanted to know if there is any downside to using Christmas trees for a hoogle bed or a hoogle mound. Um, Let me hear your thoughts. Thanks. Bye.
0: I'll say it again. You can use any tree you want to to make a hoogle bed, and there will be little to no downside with any of them. Softwood will decompose faster than hardwood. Therefore, the life of the system will be a little bit less. Um, but that would mean a Christmas tree would fill that void. But if you're planting perennials and using them as an establishment-based system anyway, by the time that wood core is broken down, the system so-dad-gone established it doesn't need it anymore anyway. Hardwood will take longer to break down. The system will last longer, but it will take longer to really start to work in earnest. And about the only thing you shouldn't use is something that's highly allopathic. Or something that is, has a high degree of fungicide. So I wouldn't use black walnut um, because it's a much too high quality of a wood, even in small pieces, to be putting into the ground anyway. And it is allopathic. Uh, I wouldn't probably use pecan for the same reasons. Um, or anything with uh, juglone in it, I would probably stay away from. And again, all of those trees, that wood is worth more to me as cooking wood than it is as um, as wood anyway. Uh and I also would refrain from using something like black locust, which um is far too valuable for far too many other purposes to put in the ground anyway as well. And the main reason I wouldn't use black locust is because it'll take about a hundred years to break down because the Dadgone thing's made of like fifty percent fungicide. Um that's why you can take untreated black locust fence posts to put them in the ground and a fence lasts damn a hundred years. Um so those are the only things I wouldn't use. So pines, yes. Pines, yes. Can you use pines? Yes. Probably wouldn't use cedar either uh, due to some allopathic reasons. Uh, before anybody asks, once again, can you use wood chips? Yes. Seb Holzer has made some hugel beds using waste potatoes. So somebody somewhere else has a whole bunch of potatoes that have gone rotten, and Holzer will put those in a mound and make a hugel bed on top of waste potato. Paul Wheaton has said that you could do something like plant a whole bunch of vetch, hairy vetch, a huge mass of vetch, Chop it all up, put it into a pile, and use that as your biomass. Um, I don't know that I buy that as much as you know using wood or whatever, but it would probably work. All of these systems work. All it is about is a slowly decaying organic matter core that also has the ability to wick water from the subsurface up into where the plants can get at it. And for those that maybe haven't heard of hugelkultur before, it's basically you bury wood, and when you do that. The conventional thinking, which I believe is completely wrong, is the wood holds moisture. I think that's true, but it's a small part of why it works. I think it's about nutrients, nutrient cycling, fungal growth, interconnectivity, fungal hyphae. And as far as the direct moisture, I believe it's more about a sponge effect. So I want you to think about it this way. If I take a a shallow pan full of water and I put a plain old sponge in it and I wait a while, that sponge will become saturated. If I stack another sponge on top of the first sponge and wait a while, that sponge will become uh, saturated. And I can stack those sponges very, very high where they'll be a little drier as you go up, but i got to go really high before they won't get wet anymore. In fact, what's going to stop it probably long before one sponge sucking from the other sponge is going to be we'll run out of water in the pan. That's what a hoogle bed really is. The, the, The wood core is accessing the moisture below the surface, and wicking it up to the availability of the plants around it. So, yeah, you can use a Christmas tree. Um, let's take another call.
5: Jack, this is Karim from Chicago. I had two questions. Number one, do I need to build a frame around a raised garden bed? And number two, if I'm putting together a hoogle bed, is emerald ash an okay type of tree to use for that?
0: Um little backstory: story, um, I had a little playground set in my backyard and covered an area about 20 by 10. Uh, we took that out this year, and I'm looking to convert that into a garden bed since basically the grass is already destroyed in that area. And as far as the emerald ash, uh, I live in the Chicagoland area, and we've had a huge issue with emerald ash borers, and my yard is no less.
2: Uh,
0: it basically
5: killed the tree, and so I have a dead tree sitting in my front yard that I'm thinking of chopping down and using for a Google
0: bed. Anyways, Thanks. I swear to God, guys, I didn't put those two calls together on purpose. You can use any tree that's not allopathic or won't break down in the ground for a hoogle bed. I mean it. I said it. I'll say it again. A little thing I want to point out, though. It's not an emerald ash tree. Um, I think a lot of people have become uh, believing in that, that an emerald ash is a tree. An emerald ash borer is the pest. And they call the emerald ash borer an emerald ash borer because he has this emerald color to him. And the ash trees are just various ash trees and there's specific ashes that they're really hitting hard. Um, we have this problem with the ash borer largely because there's so many dead gone ash trees planted to the exclusion of other trees. It's a, it's a distributed monocrop in, in, in the suburbs is basically what you have with ash borer, uh, issues. Um, a lot of these ash trees are, are pretty old. Ashes are not a long term tree uh in in large numbers in forests. Uh ashes are trees that are kind of a mid secession tree. They come in along with or just after a lot of your pioneer species, your pines, your legumes, etc. Uh they're a relatively short lived tree. Uh they're not I mean ash is just not like a tree that you generally see like an ash forest, the way you see an oak forest. It's, it's not designed to be a dominant species in a long-term uh, overstory of a forest. It just isn't. And it's really because it can't be that way and really be much of a sustainable ecosystem because it doesn't have a mast as a long-term overstory to support diverse life the way an oak or a hickory or something produces a nut. Or even a, a, a softer wood like a, a mulberry produces a fruit that has uh, the ability to stay another life. There's not a lot that comes off an ash uh, that is usable other than biomass. So it's designed it to be a mid-succession tree. And there might be some old ash trees in an old forest, and they might be very healthy, and they're the ones that could withstand the attacks of the pests and all, um, or the ones that were isolated. They're in such a diverse ecosystem that they, uh, they the pests can't even find them. Uh, so we've, we've altered that with this massive planting. What happens in the suburbs all the time is a tree comes into vogue, and that's what happened with ash. Um it, it it's a fast-growing, beautiful tree that provides a lot of shade, uh, and, and doesn't have any of that nasty food residue that it drops. Like some people won't plant food trees, like pecans, because they make a mess. You mean they drop nuts on the ground? Yeah. That's what they mean. So ash became in vogue uh, really heavily about 40 to 50 years ago is when it started getting planted like crazy. Now you have all these mature trees, all in these sterile suburban environments, too many of them, wrong ratio, pests is going in and take them out. That's what's happening. And you might as well turn them into hoogle beds. It's, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, to do that, and uh, a dead one especially, because what else are you going to do with it? So I would definitely consider making a hoogle bed out of that. Now, next, do raised beds need to have borders? And the answer is absolutely not. They do not need to have borders. It's more about do you want borders and why. Now, I think a lot of people think that a raised bed needs to have borders, because if you don't put borders, all the dirt will wash away. This is not true. Uh There's raised beds all over the place, including in my backyard right now, with no borders whatsoever. But a raised bed will be a mounded bed without borders. It will be rounded. It will have a a rounded shape to it. This is not bad in itself, but if you want to significantly raise it, uh, every inch that goes up is further width you have to make before it becomes kind of pitched like a hugel bed, a steep angle. Steep angles on a relatively small bed make your planning a little bit complex. The biggest reason you would build a a standard raised bed using a border is because you can raise it up and get a nice flat surface to plant in a grid-like or a a staggered grid-like pattern. Tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that for standard gardening. They work great for that. And they're very easy to manage because everything's nice and flat. But if you're not worried about that and you just want to have a good, healthy growing environment, uh, there's no need of borders. And let's face it, those borders... Whether they're timbers or whether they're uh, cinder block or brick or whatever, or they're another input. So the biggest thing is you don't need them, but when you're thinking about how you're going to manage a garden and how you're going to plant it, how you're going to irrigate it, what have you, you may decide that that's what you want. But we're thinking about putting in a few just for peppers and tomatoes and things like that. Uh, if it's a nice raised bed bordered garden, you can put pipes on the sides of the, your, your, uh, your edges. And it's real easy to put low tunnel, poly tunnels to extend your season with. There's a lot of functionality there, but it's not necessary. And again, the main reason people think it's necessary is they think that the dirt will go somewhere. If you put a big pile of dirt somewhere, unless it's on a steep hill with heavy runoff, you come back a, l- a while later, it'll settle and spread out a little bit. But as soon as stuff starts growing in it, It actually becomes more of a landscape. It doesn't go anywhere. So do you need it? No. In Pennsylvania, where we did the garden, I was talking about at the beginning of the show with my grandfather, we never had um, borders. We never really had raised beds, though. All we did was we had uh, double-dig beds. So when you first dug the bed up at the beginning of the year to plant it, which I think is wasteful effort now, but it it does work, um, it would be a little higher than the grass in between the beds. We just basically had grass. We'd go in every year. My grandfather was a stickler for things looking straight. So I'd put a line in the ground and make a straight line and an edger And any of the grass that had encroached during the early spring. I would cut with an edger, and then I would dig it. And then the paths between the guards were just grass and wide enough that a lawnmower would fit down there in one pass and mow it. And that was it. And all we did was dig. Now, when you first dug it, it, of course, it raised up a little bit, but it raised up pretty evenly, and as it settled back down, you know, there was no raised bed; it was in the ground garden. It works just fine too. Um, but if you put mulch on it, it's going to come up, right? Um, I think it all. I think it's one of these things where is it? It depends. What do you want, and why are you putting borders on it? There are people that just think a garden without the borders is just untidy and tacky and whatever. And I'm like, get over it. It's natural, is what it is. But they do it for purely aesthetic purposes, and that's okay too. But I I have to admit, as much as I like my, you know, my hugel mounds that we've put in and the contour based beds and all, that from a management standpoint, especially with row crops like tomatoes and peppers and broccolis and lettuces, that flat, easy to work with surface, easy to manage surface has real appeal. I don't know if it's an advantage more than appeal. And if it's, if it appeals to you and you enjoy working with it, you'll do a better job and you will have better results. So, so that's on that. So anyway, that's the last question we're going to cover today. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. First, uh, listener call show in a while. I felt like I got a little tripped up here and there with some timing on a few things, but, uh, overall I think it went well. I, I'd like to end given that we're into a, a new year and I always pick up a lot of listeners in January of a new year with some thoughts for you. Some of the topics we cover here might seem a little bit advanced and if you, if you want to get a firm, foundation in the survival podcast just know that every episode ever produced is available at the survival podcast.com the last 50 episodes are on itunes at all times if you want older ones than that you have to go through and individually get them if you become an msb member they're all in zip files for you for free you can download all of them in blocks of 24 and if you use itunes or whatever you can export them or import them straight in there but they're all there but it's a lot i mean 1270 odd episodes right if you go to the site um, and, uh, you, you click on or more accurately hover on welcome, uh, up in the top, you'll see some different things, how to listen and stuff like that. Um, but one of them you'll see is shows for new listeners. And there are, uh, about six shows there that really, uh, seem to, j- to, to jive with people and getting the cores of what we're trying to do around here. You can give those a shot if you want to. Uh, ask a question for a show like this. Understand, I like, don't get to all the calls due to volume alone. Uh, but 866-65-THINK. I usually said at the beginning of the show, I didn't today. 866-65-THINK is the 800 number. It's not a live show. It's pre-recorded, so you have to call in, leave a message. And, uh, I, I, you know, do about 10 calls a week. Expert council calls. Call in and say, this call is for expert panel member, and all the expert panels, uh, members are listed. Uh, in the show notes of every, uh, of every show now, I have them all listed there, what they cover. And, uh, if you do that, it makes sense to send me an email. Jack at com, is my email and say, I just made a call for expert panel member, you know, whoever, uh, and tell me the number you called from and I'll be more likely to get it out of the queue for you rather than finding it at the end of the week and get it over to, uh, the, the, the member to get an answer back to us. Um, if you want to send me an email to ask a question for stuff on the show, email jack at sur- at the survivalpodcast.com again jack at the dot com. I uh, put question for Jack or comment for Jack or you know, subject for Jack or idea for Jack in the subject line. It'll get into my – if you use for Jack uh, and one other word only, you will get into my special folder for review. I can't answer them all. We, I, I am talking about hundreds a day. I still do all my own email. I don't have an email screening assistant or anything like that. I do my best to, you know, to, to communicate with and read everything, but I can only do so much, and I, I'm just giving you that foreknowledge. But I want to tell you really what modern survivalism here is at the end, both as the new listener and for everybody that's, that's still tuned in today. Um, it's about life, and it's about an understanding that life sometimes goes really good and sometimes goes really bad, and that as human beings, we're blessed. You know, a squirrel will store nuts for the winter because they know the winter's coming, but it's an instinct – Uh, They don't know that this winter might be worse than last winter or this winter might be milder. And if there's not a lot of nuts to store, there's only so many other things they can go figure out. They're just a squirrel. And that's true of every other life form that we know of. There may be life forms in the universe, but on this planet, we are the only life form that actually can assess our situation and take proactive, preemptive steps to ensure that if something goes wrong... We can deal with that situation better than if we had not done that. It is a gift. Again, we are the only life form that we know of that can do this as a conscious decision and be adaptable prior to an event to actually look out ahead and and not just go winter's coming, so I'm and I'm going to put food in a hole in the ground. To actually look out and go, there's a really bad drought forecasted and wheat prices are going to go up, and that means all food prices are going to go up. Corn, everything in the food supply is going to be in shorter supply this year and preemptively decide something will be done about this. Or when it's not hysterical nonsense from the CDC, if there's really a, a serious illness that is a true threat, instead of you know sneezing your sleeve a hundred times, you have to hear from everybody and their mother to, to actually say, I'm going to do something about this. And because we have that ability, what we can realize is that these individual things, by the time we know, oh, it's going to be this or, oh, it's going to be that, everybody knows. Everybody's in panic mode, and now you're competing for resources. Whereas what we want to do as modern survivalists is is step back. I've said this once today, but I want to say it here again at the end. Step back from the whole, oh, it's an economic collapse. Oh, it's a flu pandemic. Oh, it's radiation. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. And just say – Flat out. I don't know what it is, and I don't know what it's going to be. There's areas that I'm concerned about more than others. In my instance, I am far more concerned about economic collapse in the next 20 years, an economic shift, an economic rebasement, a fall of the United States from economic supremacy in the world, what is going to happen. That's on the, on the, you know, that's, that's coming. Um, than I am many other things. But I don't really care about the individual disaster or the individual concern. I know that as a human being, as a human being, I need food, I need water, I need shelter, I need energy, I need security, and I need to be concerned with my health and sanitation. Those are my six primary survival needs. And that all of these events put limitations on those six needs being available to me so my plan is to simply make sure that I have redundancies in those six areas and that I have surplus in those six areas. And if you take that simple, common-sense approach, then you've got that emergency panic button disengaged, right? Whatever you hear that makes you start freaking out and sending me an email, like, oh, I heard this thing on the radio and it... I'm going to be okay. I've got food for a couple months. If nothing else, I'm going to eat. I've figured out how we're going to stay put. I've figured out where we would go if we can't stay put, how we're going to get there. I've figured all this stuff out, and I've put it in enough that at least I've bought myself some time to think and deal with whatever comes, because as long as I can think logically, I can probably adapt. Anything other than being run over by a gravel truck I can, you know, or being hit with a massive cancer diagnosis or something like that, I can probably deal with it. And if those other things happen... There's some point of view that has to be fatalistic and just say, you know, if I'm going to be hit by a gravel truck, all the prepping in the world's not going to change it. So I'm going to live my life in power and emboldened. And I'm going to put these redundancies in place, not because I'm afraid, but so that I will not need to be afraid of things that I should not be afraid of as a responsible freaking adult. Because all of that is what every responsible adult should be doing before they're out buying an Xbox at the age of 29 on a freaking credit card right it's it's ridiculous that a redneck from texas has to be the one to say these things but so be it i love doing it so that's that's that piece and then you evolve you start to realize the food you're eating isn't safe It's not healthy. You can't just stop eating it tomorrow. That It's expensive in some ways to make some changes, but you can start doing things a lot healthier and taking some responsibility for some of your own food production, production, and you start doing that. You start to realize that the education your children are receiving is inadequate, and pre-programmed and designed to dumb down society. And even if you can't homeschool, you start taking more responsibility for what they're learning, asking them questions, and challenging them to learn more. You start to realize, like I pointed out today, that your mainstream media crap is nonsense. It's pre-programmed and designed to get a certain result from society. The illusion that your local news is any different than the national news is just that, an illusion peppered and salted with a human interest story and a story of a local corrupt official. That's all that it is. And you start to ask the questions for yourself, which you're already doing or you would not be listening to this. And you start to ask questions and seek your own answers. And if you'll go that far, what you'll find is you'll start to become far less concerned about the things that that concern you now but you really have no influence over. You'll start to be far less concerned about which criminal is stealing your money you'll be more concerned about the fact that criminals are stealing your money. And the fact that the criminal stealing your money today has an R initial after his name won't be anywhere near as important as it has a D after his initial tomorrow. It'll be more important that the fact that you're being stolen from and that everybody up on that hill is stealing from you right now and that what you can do is adapt your life so it's less easy for them to steal from you. Changing the criminal... Won't change that you're being stolen from, but changing the criminal's access to the money. If you were securing a bank, you wouldn't worry about whether the guy cracking the safe was a Republican or a Democrat, would you? You would worry about making the safe as strong as possible. That's how you have to guard your life against government tyranny. It doesn't matter which criminal's aggressing on you, how do you design your life to be resilient? How do you design your mind to be adaptable? How do you design your home to be sustainable? This is what we're really trying to do here. It's the most sane, common sense, rational approach to life that we could be taking at any time, let alone in the precarious time that we live in today. And the fact that the media continues to do nonsense with shows like Doomsday Preppers to marginalize, to minimize, to ridicule, and to mock people that are concerned with their own survival tells you how stupid and dumbed down our society has become. To 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 mock a person who has taken personal responsibility for their own needs should a system uh, failure arise, to mock that person who has made sure that they can feed their family even if they lose their job, to mock that person is a shameful act by a desperate system that does not want the people that it has enslaved with debt and ignorance to be free. It is a desperate, pathetic action, desperate, pathetic action, stop fearing people who are desperate and pathetic, that's what I want America to do, to stop fearing desperate, pathetic despots clinging to power in fear, it is your fear that empowers them, it is your fear that emboldens them, you want to fight the NSA, great. Encrypt everything you do and set your computer to randomly search for butterfly pictures. Bring the system down with action. Don't be afraid that one day they might figure out that you borrowed money from somebody and then tell them about it. Stop fearing the desperate despots who are clinging to a paradigm that is dying in front of them. Be an empowered individual who knows the value of your life, the value of your community's life, the value of your children's life, and the value of the noble ideas that really are at the heart of most human beings. That's modern survivalism. And with that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
5: Everybody up there care.